Hey, everybody, it's Tom Dreesen, and you're listening to Chad and Ryan on the Friendly Confines podcast. Rhino, I love these special edition update episodes where we get to basically do the full interview and, and have some unedited parts uh, that, uh, that that people didn't listen to when they they uh, they heard our original guest. This one is another big one, uh, comedy legend of Chicago, Tom Dreesen. Yeah, Tom Dreesen's so great. Knows his baseball for sure, and also what a charmed life he has lived. I mean, opening for Frank Sinatra, uh, obviously being able to enjoy some of the greatest comedic moments of all time being on the tonight show friends with david letterman we're going to get into all that with him plus he's got a great new book that you want to check out as well we'll talk to him about that too yeah i I, I love love the story i mean who can tell a story that that talks about going out and drinking all night with frank sinatra and harry carey and we find out who actually drank who um under the table yeah absolutely we're going to get into all that with him so here is our Special edition, uninterrupted, as you will, with Tom Dreesen in this special edition of the Friendly Confines. You're a South Sider. You're from Harvey, Illinois. So I'm curious, being from the South Side, Tom, how did one like you become a Cubs fan, knowing that it's a predominantly White Sox area when you grow up on the South Side? Oh, yeah. Where I, where I grew up, it was really all White Sox area, mostly. But what happened was I was a little boy, five years old, six years old, and my dad would listen to the Cub games on the radio, you know. And uh, and so I was listening to the Cub games with my dad and and, and uh, I, I, so I, I didn't know that I was in enemy territory. You know, by the time I was eight years old, I, you know, I was a staunch Cub fan then. But by the time, by that time, I also could take a punch because everybody in my neighborhood was White Sox fans. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I got indoctrinated earlier, you know, and, and, and been a Cub fan ever since. And you were also a bad boy for the Cubs when you were growing up as a kid as well. How did that experience uh, happen for you? How did that all come about? And what was that? No, like? that's not true. I wasn't a bad boy for the Cubs when I was growing up. I was a bad boy for the Cubs when I was 40 years old and already in the <laughs> show business. What happened was when I was a little boy, we had eight kids lived in a shack. We had no bathtub, no shower, no hot water. It was a, a rat infested, roach infested shack. There were, I mean, you know, um, if you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in it. If you had a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. Again, we had no bathtub, no shower, no hot water. So we were poor kids. So well, my brother and I, we were out shining shoes in taverns and all the bars in the area. And Harvey was loaded with bars in those days. Yeah. Steel mills and factories that made everything from clutch plates to crankshafts and taverns, 36 taverns and all. So my brother and I were to wear our shoe shine box and we'd, we'd shine shoes and, and um, help to bring money home and help feed my brothers and sisters. My mom would put a, uh, take a nickel out every now and then put it in a little cracked cup up in the cupboard. And when it got filled, <clears throat> she'd let my brother and I, we'd take the IC from Harvey downtown, take the elevator over to Wrigley Field. We'd go sit in the bleachers and watch the Cubs, you know, and, and I would fan it. I would say to my brother, I'd say, wow. Look at the bat boy. That'd be great. Wouldn't it be great? I wonder how we could get a chance to be a bat boy. And he used to say, ah, they don't let poor kids like us bat boys. These are rich kids from the north side. You know, they get that job, you know. So now years go by. I'm still an avid Cub fan. 
Jim Fry, when he was managing the Cubs in the 80s, I'm having brunch with him one day in Chicago, and he started asking me about my how did you become a Cub fan, like you guys just did on the south side of Chicago. And I proceeded to tell him this story, and then I would sit in the bleachers and wish that I could be a bat boy. He said, well, maybe we'll make your dream come true. And he started letting me be a celebrity bat boy for like three, four days every year. You know, either I, I did it at Dodger Stadium when the Cubs came out here in L.A., and I did it at Wrigley Field. You know, and and, uh, and he, they'd let me get there early in the morning. I could hit batting practice. I could run out in the outfield and catch fly balls. Because uh, I was playing at that time in a fast-pitch softball league out in L.A. Uh, called the Show Business League. So I've I'm, I'm been an athlete all my life, but not of that caliber. You know. So, anyhow, it was, I was like a pig in slop, you know, letting <laughs> me be that boy. And then I'd go on Letterman show, and Letterman would, would he'd, he'd say, I can't believe you're a grown man. You don't, you don't really run out and pick up the bats and take them back to the dugout. Tell me you don't do that. I said, yeah, that's what a bad boy does, you know. And, and the, in my book, as a matter of fact, chapter 41 in my book is all about the Cubs and all about that time, you know, and, and all the tricks the players used to pull on the Rick Sutcliffe was, is, was a, the court jester, you know, and he, uh, he trick bagged me so many times to do dumb things. And, you know, one of the things he, he one time he filled up a styrofoam cup with Kool-Aid, red Kool-Aid in it. And, and I had the uniform on and everything. And it was just before the game was starting. He told the WGN camera, focus on Dries and I'm going to pull a stun on him. So he stuck a pencil hole in the styrofoam cup, filled it up with Kool-Aid, but kept his finger by that hole. And he, he's standing there talking to me, and he said, oh, wait a minute, I, Tommy, hold this for me. I got, and I held the Kool-Aid cup, and all the Kool-Aid streamed out all over my uniform. No, you know? no. <laughs> and, oh, no. and that would be on the evening news, you know, that would be on the evening news. <laughs> he did so much. He told me one time, you know, now, first of all, when Sut pitched on that day, you didn't talk to him. No one talked to him. He had a routine that he went through. That He sat by himself. He dressed by himself. He just privately, you know, everything he did was just methodic on the day that he pitched. But on the days that he wasn't pitching, <clears throat> you know, he was always ragging me, doing, you know, doing funny things. But one time he told me I was running out to get the bat. The last, uh, Mark Grace made the last out, and I'm running out there. And he said, when you go out there, tell Frank Pulley, the umpire, that Rick Sutcliffe thinks that he's the best umpire in the National League. And I said, okay, he said, it'll help me, Tommy, like when I'm pitching. So like a dummy, I run out there, and he's dusting off the, the plate. And I said, <clears throat> and Mr. Pulley, Rick Sutcliffe said, he said, I don't give a damn what Rick Sutcliffe said, and I don't care what you have to say. You're a bat boy. Pick up the bats and get the hell back in the dugout. <laughs> I looked at him. I was stunned. Now I realize Rick set this up with him. You know. So now when I go in the dugout, <clears throat> Rick's grinning from here. He said, what did he say? Did you tell him? I said, I told him that you thought he was the best umpire in the National League. He said, what did he say? I said, he told me to tell you he thinks you're the best pitcher in both leagues. He said, he didn't say that. I said, yeah, that's what he told me. You know, of course. <laughs> of course I, uh, he, he did stuff like that all the time. He one time put tar down. He said, Tommy, come here. And I didn't realize I sat next to him. <clears throat> he said, where are you appearing at next? I want to bring my wife, Robin. I want to catch you. So now I'm sitting in black tar, not realizing it. Then he said, Al Nipper was pitching. He said, oh, hold, hold on. He said, Nipper needs it. I want you to bring a towel out there. I run out. He told the cameras. Focus on Dries. I'm running out to the mound with all this black tar on my rear end. You know? <laughs> oh my gosh! People are laughing. It's on the evening news, of course. You know, it was amazing. It, it was, I love it. Great guys in those days: Ryan Sandberg and, and Mark Grayson and Rick Sutcliffe and uh, Jody Davis and 
I mean, all the guys, you know, uh, Zonk, you know, they, they were just great guys. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that that era. That's kind of the area, the era that that uh, made me a Cubs fan. You know, that we were we we're you know kids of kids of the '80s. Ryan and I, his team was '89, my team was '84, and you know, Rick's actually a neighbor of mine here in North County. He's in Cardiff, and uh, we've been trying to get him on the the show. We've had some near misses with him, but you know, I always like to pose this question um, to real fans, and, and you absolutely are a real fan. You mentioned you know the the shoe shine and, and collecting all the money and, and being able to go to the game, but when you th- Think back before you were a celebrity, before you had the access that you had. What do you remember of, of you know, the romance of Wrigley Field and and what it meant to you? And you know, the, you know, whether it was the first time you walked in into that stadium or or uh, just what you felt or what you still feel. What is it? What does Wrigley mean to you? I can remember that <clears throat> the very first time I ever went there, and 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 I I wrote a forward to several Cub books, but basically what I tell everybody <clears throat> that. W- when you live in the world that we live in, this fast-paced world, there are so many times in your life, and especially when you get older, you wish that time could just stand still. Everything's going too fast, and, and you just wish that only if time could stand still. And then one day you're driving through a neighborhood in Chicago, and you come to a stoplight, and you look to your right, and there's a ballpark. And you, and you park your car, and you go inside that ballpark, and you're going to walk inside that ballpark, and you're going to sit in the seat that your great-great-grandfather sat in, that your great-grandfather sat in, that your grandfather sat in, that your father sat in, that you are going to sit in, and your son and your son's son. And you're going to watch a game that they all watched. And for a moment, time stands still at Wrigley Field. When you go into Wrigley Field, time stands still. You're going back into time and watch that this wonderful game that all of your ancestors watched in that same park and in that same seat. You know, that's, that's what it means to me. I, even now, the first thing when people say to me, after this lockdown, this COVID lockdown, you know, are you looking forward to getting back on stage? Are you looking forward to, you know, traveling to see family? I always say, I'm looking forward to go to Wrigley Field. That's what I'm looking forward to and watch a ball game. I love yeah. that. And, and Tom, I wanted to follow that up with one more Wrigley question. And, and we're going to ask you a lot of how did it feel to sort of questions. You are, I believe, you're noted as, as you have, have done the seventh inning stretch more than anybody else. Or maybe you're, you're, you're tied. But uh, what does that feel like? Is it, is, does that ever get old, getting up there? Is it, is it old hat to you? I imagine that the nerves are not where they were. But what does that feel like on a packed house and a, on a su- sunny summer afternoon at Wrigley Field to lead, the, lead the, the charge in the seventh inning. Well, you're right. I'm tied with Joe Montaigne. Joe and I are tied. We've done it the same, I think, 17 years in a row. Wow. But I can't tell you. I, I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian. For, this is my 51st year in show business. So being a stand-up comedian is what, you know, what I do. That's what I am. I'm not a singer. You know? And so I've, I've opened for Frank Sinatra in front of 20,000 people in, in big arenas around the country. And also open for him in front of 40,000 people in Hawaii one time, you know, 40,000 people outdoors. But for me to go up in that booth that very first time, and now I'm, this is, you know, I, I used to look up there and watch Harry do it and all that stuff. Now I'm in that booth, and they're, they're, I'm about to go out and sing in front of 40,000 people, and I'm not a singer. I mean, I can carry a tune. I, I was a former altar boy and everything, but it's really intimidating. It's really, really intimidating. But you know, you rise to the occasion and, 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 uh, and, 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 and you, and you do it, you know, cause that, that's what show business is about all your career. You've learned 
to get past the nerves to do your performance. I once was on a show called the Phil Donahue show years ago. And a woman said, do you, she got up and one of the questions from the audience, do you ever get scared before you go to out to do your show? Or do you ever get scared while you're out there performing? I said, yeah, but we learn to work scared. You know, the pilot who lands at 747 every day, you don't think he comes down whistling Dixie, you know, <laughs> at the tense moment landing that big baby with 350 people on his aircraft or something like that. So we learn to work under those conditions. But it's it's really awesome and intimidating when you're out, up on up there and all those Cub fans are down below you and singing, take me out to the ballgame. We're talking with Tom Dreesen. He's our guest here on the seventh inning stretch. The name of the book is still standing my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. You can buy it on amazon.com. You can get it on his website, tomdreesen.com as well. So certainly be sure to check it out. It is a wonderful read has hundreds of five-star reviews on Amazon. Um, Tom, and, and, you know, to your point, I mean, not only did you open for Sinatra, you closed for president Clinton. So I can only imagine you say how daunting it could be to sing the seventh inning stretch. I'm curious though, you know, you had such a close relationship with Frank Sinatra, you're friends with David Letterman, but I'd love to know if you had any sort of relationship with Harry Carey and what that relationship was like and what it was like to be around him, um, when he was doing Cubs games. Do you have any good stories about Harry that you could share? Oh, you know, I, I loved Harry Carey. So that your listeners understand when you said I closed for President Clinton, it's kind of a joke because I once had to follow at a private party in Chicago uh, in Highland Park. My friend Lou Weisbach had President Clinton at his house with 85 people there, all these state senators and U.S. senators, and I had, they all spoke, and then I, and President Clinton spoke, and then I had to follow President Clinton. And that was also intimidating. I'm thinking... I was a raggedy poor kid on the south side of Chicago, you know, and here now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm following the president of the United States. That was really intimidating, but it was, it was fun. And, and, and I think that's in the book as well. You'll, you'll get a kick out of it. But Harry was from another planet, as you know. Do you, do you know why, when you think about the people that are legends in Chicago, you know, you say Harry Carey. And everybody, yeah, yeah. Mike Ditka, you go, yeah, 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 like Mike. And you say, uh, Jim McMahon. You, do you know why people in Chicago love those guys? Because what you see is what you get. There wasn't a Harry Carey off the show that was different than Harry Carey on the show. Or there wasn't a Mike Ditka, two Mike Ditkas or two Jim McMahons. What you see is what you got. And Chicagoans really appreciate that. And Harry was just that guy. And and I I, I can't tell you how many times I stayed up with him till the wee hours of the morning in some bar, you know, like the Hachi Tachi in Chicago or one of those <laughs> bars. Uh, uh, he, he was, he was a character and, and to himself. He, you know, it, it, one, one time, every time I'd be in Chicago with Frank Sinatra and if I was watching the game with Frank or something, then he'd say, one of these days I got to go over and teach Harry how to sing that song, you know, take me out to the ball game and jokingly say that. But one night I got them all, them together and, Harry was going to, who was a night owl, and Frank never went to bed till the sun came up, you know. And I was going to see who could out drink who. And finally, around 4 in the morning, Harry said, Good night, Frank, you got me, you know. <laughs> he went up to his room. We were in, in the pump room, you know, uh, and at the Ambassador East. And there was a back booth there that Frank, whenever we would do shows in Chicago, uh, then we'd go get a bite to eat at Gibson Steakhouse or something, but we'd always end up at the pump room, and they would. Let it, they'd lock up at 2 o'clock, but they'd let Frank stay in the back. 
till dawn because he never went to bed till the sun came up. And uh, he, he sent Harry to bed one night, you know. Uh, Harry was, was just, uh, I, I, when Harry Carey had the stroke, that's when I got to announce one of the games. They had celebrity announcers. And so I got to do radio uh, for several innings and I got to do television. Uh, but the interesting thing, when Harry came back from the stroke, you know, I'd be out with him and his wife, Dutchie. And Harry would, he would have, what, what happened, Dutchie would say, now, Harry, the doctor said, you can't drink. He said, that's not true, Dutchie. He said, I could have one drink. And she, and he would have one glass of wine. Then he had one Randy Alexander. He'd have one scotch and soda. <laughs> he'd have one bottle of Budweiser. He'd have one screwdriver. I'm not lying. <laughs> he had one of each, you know. So, Tom, um, you know, we were talking a little before we started recording about some of your Chicago roots as you were getting started. And I mentioned my, my season ticket holder neighbors, uh, Marty and Linda Silber. Linda actually said she performed uh, with you at a show at La, La Pub, which was, uh, you said, uh, was one of the, the, you created kind of the comedy scene, or you were one of the first ones to bring it to Chicago. I bring that up because you were a part of such a groundbreaking uh, comedy group, uh, Tim and Tom, Um and it, at, the, it, at the time, it was the first one, first uh, uh, biracial uh, group of, of its kind in America and uh, in so cutting edge. And I just would want to know, you know, as you've seen, because this last year was such a tumultuous year um, with it in terms of, of uh, equity and, and racial justice. You know, when you think about what you did and the stand you took and you think about where we are in, in America history right now, you know, do, do you do you put more weight on on what you did back then? Do you feel like um, it was the start of something big? And what do you think? You know, how much further do we have to go here? Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. We started mm. out in 1969 to 1975. There were no comedy clubs in America at that time, so we worked all black clubs in the north and the south, what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit, black owned, black operated nightclubs. And, you know, like in Chicago, it was the Burning Spear, the High Chaparral, uh, the Guys and Gals Lounge, the Dating Club Lounge. Um, you know, th those are the black clubs we worked in. And then in Boston, it was a sugar shack. In Boston, it was a 20 grand in Detroit, a club that they had there. Motown was in Detroit at that time. And so all the Motown acts broke their acts in at this place called the 20 grand. And then it was a club Harlem in Atlantic City before they had gambling. So we worked these kind of places, you know, going across the land just trying to make people laugh. At that time, there were race riots in all over the United States, uh, in all the major cities, African-Americans feeling disenfranchised from the system were rioting. In fact, Harvey had one of the biggest riots, Harvey where I grew up, one of the biggest riots in the country. And, um, and, and so also students were protesting the Vietnam War uh, all over. So America was in turmoil. I had just gotten out of the service and Tim just got out of college. Anywhere there was racial tension, we went to perform. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did the county jail in Chicago three times in the same year. Um, we didn't preach. We just went and made people laugh, you know, tried to make people laugh. And, and uh, at, at, during these, uh, you know, very serious times, my, I've said this time and time again on interviews, that if I die tomorrow, the world doesn't owe me a thing. One of the things I'll always remember of all my career, and, and 40, I've, I've been uh, uh, in the business, as I say, 51 years, touring with Sammy Davis Jr., touring with Smokey Robinson, touring with Gladys Knight and Phipps, Natalie Cole, uh, touring with, with uh, Frank Sinatra for 14 years, performing for presidents. I, I mean, all these things that I've done, 
one of the things I'll never, I'll take to my grave is the times that Tim and I were together and after a show, a young white kid would come up to us and say, you know, I got a black friend that I want to reach out to, but if I do, the white guys are going to wear me out. But after watching you and you and Tim having so much fun, I'm going to reach out to my black friend. Then a black kid would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend that I really like and I want to reach out. But if I, if I do, my, the brothers are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tim, I'm going to do that. Tim and I both agreed that this was more gratifying than anything that we could have ever done because race relations are about race relations. You can't legislate love. No government can ever legislate love. So it's about you. It's about people. And what they saw with Tim and I up on stage having a lot of fun was two guys having a relationship. It just so happens one was black and one was white. But we were, we were having fun on stage and poking fun at all the stereotypes. Some of the stuff that we did in those days, the politically correct police today would try to run us out of on rail. The politically correct police are trying to destroy comedy and freedom of speech. See, the First Amendment, thousands of men and women died so that you have the right to say whatever you want to say. That's what the First Amendment is all about, the freedom of speech. You know, you can turn us off. You don't have to listen to us. You can walk out the door. You can ask for your money back. But you cannot tell someone what they can say other than yelling fire in a, in a crowded theater. But when you start telling people what they can say, your next step is you're going to tell them what they're supposed to think. And that's when the nation becomes a communist dictatorship. Don't allow that to happen. The stand-up comedians are the last bastion of freedom of speech. That was a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> No, but a great answer for sure. I mean, that was, I think, wonderfully played. Um, I, I'm curious, Tom, because I think a lot of comedians are going through this right now as the pandemic has been going on. Clearly, that has interrupted people like yourself to be able to perform um, in front of live audiences and not getting those laughs and not being able to book the gigs that you guys are used to. And, and someone like yourself who's established you know, it's it's one thing. And then you have other people on the other side of the spectrum. I'm sure you can understand the people that are just trying to break in or are close. And now they are unfortunately not able to. I'm curious what you feel like the pandemic, unfortunately, has maybe done for comedians because now they're unable to kind of you know flex that muscle of telling jokes. And what have you been doing during the pandemic? Has this been a time for you to, to write more? Has this been a time for you to just kind of lay back and relax? How, how have you been spending that time? And what do you think it means for the future with everything that's been going on for the pandemic when it comes to stand-up comedy? Well, it, it, first of all, one of the biggest problems we have in answer to your question, what I've been doing, of course, I've been doing, I always write, I'm in the habit of writing new material all the time and, and, but always was going to try it out. When I came off the road, I'd go over to the laugh factory in Hollywood and I'd, and I'd get up and try it out. You know, that, that those days are gone. We, we haven't been on stage in 13 months for a comedian to be at their best. There's certain things that have to be in place. One is we always like a low ceiling. If we could have a low ceiling, because laughter is sound. It hits the ceiling and it comes at us. So, you know, the lower the ceiling. I used to hate Caesar's Palace. I worked. I was under contract to seven different hotels in Las Vegas in my career. And I, I, the ones I loved were the Sands, the Desert Inn, the uh, Riviera, the Golden Nugget. They were great comedy rooms because they had low ceilings. Caesar's Palace had a real high ceiling. And so the laughter would, it didn't come back at you 
the way the other rooms did. We set our timing off of your laughter. You know, if you if you dissect comedy, it gets boring. So I don't want to do that. But when I'm, when when we when the room is filled and people are shoulder to shoulder, when we're on stage, we're like electricity. Our words are going out all the way through that audience and all the way back up to us, like an electrical current going all the way through the audience and back up to us. And so we set our timing off of that. When you tell people come in the room, but six sit off to the left, five sit in the back, four over in the corner, and you're leaving gaps. It's like you took a scissors and cut the electrical current that we need to score mm-hmm. heavily. You know, you cut, just cut uh, the circuit out for us. So it, it doesn't work as well. So what's happened in, in, in the, uh, let me digress on something else. On the political correctness, Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld said they won't work, they won't work colleges anymore because these kids are being, uh, are being taught all this politically correctness nonsense in their universities. And, and so that's why they, you know, they won't work there anymore. We, the big acts are not going to be able to book big rooms anymore. Who's going to, are you going to sit in a room of, of say a thousand people shoulder to shoulder? People have become so OCD now because of the coronavirus. Even if the whole world got vaccinated tomorrow and they said it's all safe, it's going to be a long time before people are going to feel comfortable sitting in a room where people are out opening up their mouths and laughing, <laughs> you, know, that, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's going to, it's going to take a long time um, for that to come back again. Uh, you can, the new comics of today, you know, if you're learning your craft and you're going out in front of 25, 30 people, okay, that's what we all did when you started. But as you become established and you're used to booking two, three, four, five hundred people, eight hundred people come to see you, you know, um, you you need a full house. You know, you don't need them spaced all over the place. And and they're not gonna. I got a call the other day. They want to know if I'd work in, at the Laugh Factory in Las Vegas. I said, Oh, are you open for? Well, no. We can only allow 50 people in a room that seats like three or four hundred. You know, uh, it, it won't work. Yeah. yeah. It- it's going to be interesting, and I've, I've been pondering that as well as a season ticket holder. You know, when will people feel comfortable being shoulder to shoulder at Wrigley Field? And it's, it's the same feeling. When will people feel comfortable at live shows and performances, comedy shows? We've got time for just a couple more questions, Tom. I, I wanted to pose this question to you um, again, back into your history as, as you think about, you know, as you were honing your craft and, and that moment when you were out uh, with Johnny Carson and the first time. That, that you you really crushed the set um, and were called over to the, you know, called over to talk to Johnny. What, you know, that was really the springboard in, in a lot of ways to, to your, your greater uh, public success. What was that moment like? Because so many, so few people have the opportunity to say, especially now that, uh, that uh, they crushed it on Johnny. Well, you know, wherever you went, after the comedy team split up, wherever you went, um, the, 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 um, uh, the, 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 in 1975, you know, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one. But that was the show that launched the career. Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The next day, he got a sitcom. The following day, he, two or three weeks later, he was on the cover of Time magazine. I mean, one appearance on The Tonight Show, 26 million people watched that show in those days. 
And, and so one appearance, your whole life would change. So we all migrated to the West Coast after the comedy team split up. I was on, going on stage every night at the comedy store with all these new kids, David Letterman, um, Gallagher, Michael Keaton, Robin Williams, Jay Leno, you know, Elaine Boozler. These are all, all new kids you know, that I was going on stage with every night. Uh, but to get on that tonight show, and it took me a year. I finally uh, did a whole bunch of strange things to finally get on there. I'll tell you about that some other time. But I finally got on. I got an audition, and I passed it. I auditioned with a new kid. I, his name was Billy Crystal. I don't know whatever happened to him, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm on the Chad and Ryan show, so you know. I don't, I love that's it. right. Anyhow, uh, anyhow so uh, that, when you finally get there, you go to the Tonight Show, and they put you in, in makeup, and then you go up to your dressing room, and then they finally come and get you. They bring you down to the green room, and you're going on next, and then they bring you out, and they put you behind that curtain, and you're going to go out in front of 26 million people. Now, the first time I got there, I went through all that, and they ran out of time in the green room. They said, I'm sorry, you got to come back next week. We're out of time. I came back the next week, went through the whole procedure again. Sorry, we ran out of time. Three times in a row, they bumped me. On the fourth time I finally got on, I was in the, in the makeup room, and Fred DeCorda, the producer, came in, and he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. You know, so now, <laughs> now you're, you know, when they took me behind that curtain, and, and, and the coordinator has to leave you alone, he said, okay, it's fine. He walks away, and you're back there, and they're in commercial break. Doc Severinsen's playing the music because they're in commercial break. All of a sudden, you're going, oh, my God. I mean, this is the moment. This is the, seize the moment that you heard athletes talk about all their lives. That you know that you know the, the guy who is going to go back to the minors because he's having a terrible year. But somebody gets injured, somebody else gets injured, and all of a sudden he's up with bases loaded. And this is that moment. If you if you hit it out of the park right now, you're here to stay. You know Whitney Houston had a song called "That One Moment in Time." You know where there's a moment in time where where I I'm just all of my dreams are a heartbeat away, and all the answers are up to me, and that's what you're feeding. You know, I, not only the 26 million people watch it, so every booker from agent, all the, 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 the coordinators across the country, entertainment directors watch that show. Not only that, my mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois watching, so if I bomb, I can't even go back home. You know, so now you, you, the, the lights come on, they're coming out of commercial break, the music stops and your heart stops. And Johnny Carson says, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Will you welcome, please, Tom Dreesen? Now, that one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight, you know, that's a terrific line. He never uses it any else, but at any other time but that first time. All of a sudden, the curtain opens up, and you walk out and do all these bright lights. You can't see the audience. There's a mark on the floor you've got to hit. You hit that mark, and, and, and there's a cameras in front of you, but you can't see the audience. And you get that first joke out, and it gets a laugh. And I got that second joke out, and it got a laugh. And then pretty soon the third joke, I hear Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. And now I got an applause. And I ended up getting eight applause. And I closed with, I said, you've been, a, this is, you've been a wonderful audience. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show. And show business is a tough life. So if you liked me, just if you liked me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, <laughs> light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me. Will you please? <laughs> now the, the audience roars. Applause, applause. I go back through the curtain, and the coordinator come running around the corner. He said, go back, go back. Johnny wants you to take a second bow. So I, I, you go back through the curtain for a second bow, and Johnny puts that little circular finger up saying, you scored, kid. You know, and, and uh, 
I never stopped working from that day. That was in December 1975. I never stopped working. I started doing Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. You know, I did $20,000 Pyramid, Hollywood Squares. I was doing Murder, She Wrote in Columbo's. I was being acting roles. Uh, you know, I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, I never stopped working from that time, you know. It's so remarkable, Tom, and obviously you've had such a blessed life, and it's so great to see all the hard work that you put in paid off. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you named the, the luminaries of show business with the people with Merv Griffin and, you know, Dean Martin Roasts and Dinah Shore and obviously Frank and David Letterman and Johnny Carson. But I'm curious from a personal standpoint, with all the accomplishments you've had, um, I'm curious where your fandom comes in of where you would rank the Cubs finally winning the World Series in 2016, and we'll end with this, where that kind of stands in your personal sort of memoir, so to speak, of all the other accomplishments that uh, you've been able to experience. Where does 2016's Cubs championship rank in Tommy Dreesen's book for your, for your money? Well, I have to tell you, I, I wrote about it in the book, and, and I'll tell you guys about it now. You know, they were down three to one, and, and, and I was – Jogging along, I went to three of the games in Chicago, and I was jogging along the lake in Lake Michigan. It was a, a overcast day, but a little bit of sunlight started bursting through, you know. And I took a picture of that, and 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 and, and I, I sent it to everybody, you know, on Twitter and all the other stuff that you do on your cell phone, saying it isn't over. Just a ray of light came in. There's still hope, you know, and, and uh, that sort of thing. Now, when they won in Cleveland, I had a, a gig in Palm Springs at the JW Marriott. It also was the same hotel where Frank Sinatra sang his last song. He and I performed there the last time he ever sang. But I had a corporate date there. But I, I, in, I did my show real fast, and I ran upstairs, and I watched the game all alone in, in my uh, suite at the JW Marriott. And when they won, I, 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 my phone stopped ringing. My daughter called me because they knew how excited I'd be, and I, I, I couldn't talk. I make a living talking. I spend my whole life talking you know that's what i do i i could not talk i was so choked up i couldn't believe this actually happened in my lifetime all i could think about was all the people that i knew that were cub fans that were no longer with us and and i thought god i i, I one of the things i thought of i said i wish i had a flower franchise that you could sell flowers wreaths to go to graves and it would say they did it grandpa or they did it, Grandma, or they did it, Aunt Gladys, or they did it, whoever, you know, because we, so many that the Cub fans I knew that weren't there to, to share that moment with us, you know, it, it was it was hard to believe. I couldn't believe how emotional I got over that. I was choked up, you know, really choked up. And our thanks to Mr. Tom Dreesen for joining us here on the Friendly Confines. Chad, he was a delight to talk to. A legend. Such a gentleman and man such amazing stories that was absolutely fantastic absolutely fun um it it, it, uh, it this is one of those where you're like <laughs> you're like i got news you always do that whenever you line up a good one you're like i got news and then you send me like the you send me as like his wiki page you're like i got tom and, and so um very excited uh um, to talk to him what a great guy um and uh and and just a legend in chicago and uh, so fun to be able to bring his cub stories to life Yeah, absolutely. So stay tuned for more special edition episodes. For Chad, I'm Ryan. We'll talk to you next time, everybody. Have a good one.
just a game For I've seen other teams and it's never the same When you're born in Chicago, you're blessed and you're a field The first time you walk into rigor 